1: Hi, I'm Annie Burke, and you're listening to The New Books Network. It seems as though no matter what field or profession you're in, the conventional wisdom is that you need to have a mentor. But how do you get a mentor? What does good mentorship provide? And how do you talk about all these things without sounding like a tool? Luckily, we have some experts with us in the field of mentorship who approach the topic ethically with nuance, humor, and insight, and without an ounce of the kind of impersonal, utilitarian language that clutters the literature of mentorship and professional success. Their book, Feminists Reclaim Mentorship, an anthology, came out from SUNY Press in February of this year. And it's such a rewarding read. So I'm really, really grateful to have the two editors of this anthology and one of its contributors. Uh, So first we have Nancy K. Miller, who is a distinguished professor of English and comparative literature at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Her many books include My Brilliant Friends, Our Lives in Feminism, Breathless, An American Girl in Paris, What They Saved, Pieces of a Jewish Past, and But Enough About Me Why We Read Other People's Lives. Tanir Oxman is also with us. She's the other editor of the collection. She's the associate professor of academic writing at Marymount Manhattan College. She's the author of How Come Boys Get to Keep Their N- Noses, Women in Jewish. American Identity, and Contemporary Graphic Memoirs, and the co-editor with Seamus O'Malley of the comics of Julie Doucet and Gabriel Gabriel Bell. Did I say Julie Doucet? Cool. Um, A Place Inside Yourself. She reviews memoirs, graphic novels, and comics for NPR and the Washington Post. And finally, we have Elizabeth, Elizabeth Alsop. Assistant Professor of Communication and Media at the CUNY School of Professional Studies and affiliated faculty in the MA in Liberal Studies at the CUNY Graduate Center. She is the author of Making Conversation in Modernist Fiction uh, from Ohio State University Press in 2019 and a number of scholarly essays on 20th century fiction, film and television aesthetics and contemporary TV storytelling. Her cultural criticism has appeared in The Atlantic, the Los Angeles Review of Books, salon in the New York Times Magazine. She's currently writing a book on the films of Elaine May that I'm very excited to read. Um, Thank you, Nancy, Tanier and Elizabeth for joining me today. Thanks for thank having you. us, Annie. Uh, you're welcome. I, I really, really loved reading this. And um, I think anyone who is thinking about their career in any kind of holistic way, uh, particularly academics, which happen to be a, the lion's share of listeners at New Books Network, but in general, anyone who wants to be thoughtful about how they grow in their field and how they become better versions of whatever it is that they're working toward. I think we'll get a lot out of this book, um, Nancy and Taner. I wanted to ask you, how did this project evolve?
2: Yeah, good question. We've been, you know, going over the history of how we how the book came to be, um, and there's <laughs> a couple of competing narratives. But Nancy, I think we could start with your previous book and and the friendship book and
0: that journey. Okay, so um, thanks to Tanir, who has a great sense of chronology, unlike some people I could mention, um, we have a date, which is 2019, because I published um, my last book, My Brilliant Friends, and and talking about the book with Tanir, I realized that even though the book was specifically pitched toward thinking about friendship with women who were also writers, in fact, one of the writers was actually my mentor (laughs) had been my mentor. And that in the other, and in two of the other relationships, we were kind of writing partners. And so Tanir and I began to say, think, well, what is really the difference between these friendship relationships and mentorship, especially since one of them was kind of officially, uh, the mentor now, that coincided with two other moments one in the institution at large where the professional organizations started realizing that the institution was changing and and one of them the we call the MLA the modern language association launched a program they called speed mentoring and i thought that was absolutely ridiculous since it's like speed dating and the whole point of mentorship is that it's a relationship and it's not something that lasts two seconds. So we started talking about that. And then I actually got a prize for mentoring at the Graduate Center. Now, Tanir was on a different path. Do you want to say, Tanir, how you were doing?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think I will just go back to the MLA speed mentoring. I mean, one thing that it really highlighted for us Obviously, it, I, I don't know if it's the ideal format, although maybe it's the word mentor itself that's the problem there, right? Um, but it did, of course, highlight how many people in academia were struggling with finding mentorship, with connecting. And so that definitely has been something on both of our minds. Um, for me, you know, around the time that Nancy published... Her memoir on these three women, I had gotten tenure or was just about to get tenure. I can't remember exactly. But the other thing that was changing was my relationship with Nancy. I mean, it had changed since I graduated um, in 2012 from the Graduate Center. But, you know, instead of it being me showing my writing to Nancy and getting comments, it really became a relationship where we showed each other our writing and you know, we meet regularly for whatever, to look at art or for coffee, and we would talk about both of our projects. So when I was looking at her book on friendship and thinking about mentorship and writing a letter for the mentorship prize that the Graduate Center would award Nancy, I was thinking a lot about these questions. And then in my own work at my institution, I had been thrown not just as a as an assistant professor initially at Marymount Manhattan College, but running the writing program. So what that meant is that I was overseeing a lot of part time instructors, and you know there's not a lot of um, <laughs> there's not a lot of flexibility in terms of what I could do to make their lives better. Uh, I can't, you know, I have no say over how many classes they we would get assigned as a program or things like that. But one thing I realized that I could do was mentor them in different ways, whether it was just talking about, you know, specifics about teaching or just about the their individual trajectories and what, what they should do next or what they could do next. Um, so I, too, had been thinking a lot about that shifting role from being a mentee to being a mentor. Um, and both of us, I think, realized that there we were hearing a lot of these you know, stories about finding a mentor or, you know, the Cheryl Sandberg, like, lean in. I think one of her chapters actually is about finding a mentor. And we were finding it didn't really resonate at all with us. And no one had really that we could find had done um, this work of unpacking the word, the history of the word, what it has meant, um, and both the positive and negative contours of that relationship. And I want to say in conversations with different people, because we spoke to lots of friends and colleagues um, while thinking about the book, you know, people would have very strong reactions. And a lot of people's reactions would be to, whether it was tear up or just look, you know, upset about it and say, I never had a mentor or I had a missed mentorship. So we really wanted a book that would contain all of those kinds of experiences. You talk about these, thank you so much for
1: your answers. It gives me so much context for thinking about like, how wide reaching this question of mentorship was just in your own practice. And it's reflected in the book because you have contributors that really work in many different areas of the academy and beyond. A lot of scholars, I would say they're all writers, which makes sense because it's all a book of essays, so maybe not for people who don't like writing, um, but there some are poets, there's a therapist, there's some administrators who maybe aren't in the classroom, but they are interested in education and communication about education, um, and their approaches range from more sociological and academic, but I would say most are personal, and some are very personal. Um, so i think that for me i loved the eclecticism of like these all these different approaches the lengths are very different some i could read just like a few before bed others i was like really like making my way through like a longer not very but longer essay that had more sort of arguments and and parts um another plug for the book uh read it i wonder how you decided though because it's so wide-ranging and not very focused how did you decide which contributions fit in this collection and, um, as I imagine always that some
2: fall outside of your purview. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Nancy, I'll start and then maybe. You'll... Yeah, you, you start. Um, so one of the things we really wanted when, and then I, I think it would be nice to hear Elizabeth's perspective of like being asked to be in the collection. Um, so one of the things we really wanted when we, when we were thinking about the book was strong writers, because both of us you know, our writers, we think about writing a lot, we love writing, and we wanted stories that were good stories, interesting stories to read. Um, we also, of course, wanted a, some diversity in terms of, you know, people of different ranks. Um, most of the people in the book are academics, but even some of them, like Elizabeth, who will talk about her story, um, have stories that aren't about academic workplaces. Um, there were so many places we could have gone with mentorship. So, of course, mentorship can happen outside of professional context. So we we did really have to rein it in. And Nancy can talk a little bit about especially some of the initial responses like Susan Gubar's essay, which was one of the first responses we got, um, Who uh, one of the first essays we got in response to our call. Um, but I think, you know, most important for us was starting a conversation and, and making it about this specific professional context, but leaving it open for hopefully other people who are not academics or writers, um, who can still see within the contours of these different stories, like their own missed mentorship stories, or their own bad mentorship stories, or their own good mentorship stories. Um, So it was a little bit of asking around the people that we knew, the people who really responded to this prompt when we talk to them one-on-one. And I'll just add also that it's clearly within our networks. One of the things I loved about this project and working with Nancy was, you know, obviously we've been, uh, I was Nancy's mentee in graduate school, and then we turned from from a mentor-mentee relationship to also friendship. So we know a lot of the same people at this point, but it was an opportunity to learn more and to have more of a connection with people we talk to each other about like i was happy to introduce elizabeth to nancy after having spoken about her and her work for so for
0: so long uh, mm. we were trying to have on the one hand we we did work out of our own net network but we didn't know all the same people and so as a result we have somewhat of a mix even though it really is very new york centric which considering that we ended up with SUNY press is <laughs> was was not considered to be a bad thing um and i think if we if we were to do a second volume which i we have not even begun to discuss uh, i think we we might expand the geography but i would love for elizabeth to say a little bit about her story because it doesn't fit the academic model that we've been on most familiar with
3: yeah sure thanks nancy engineer um yeah, so this is really, my contribution to the book really comes from my my before life, before I entered academia, when I was working in uh, magazine publishing. And, you know, I, I for those who read the book, you'll see it's very much the story about a, a bad mentor, a failed mentorship relationship. Um, and, but I think in some ways, having written it, and now going back to it, I realized that it's also about sort of, me as i won't call myself a bad mentee but i certainly was enthralled to a lot of the kind of um i think uh you know more destructive um, narratives about mentorship that and some of the myths of mentorship that I think we'll be talking about a little bit that certainly surface in the book so I definitely thought that you know um, there was a certain amount of dues paying that I had to suffer a certain amount of kind of abuse on the job that that was all part and parcel with getting this sort of eventual payoff in the form of a a mentorship which really would come like from on high from this kind of you know um, sort of figure that would um, that would guide me in some way so it definitely was not the kind of reciprocal relationship that Nancy and Tenier have been describing. So, you know, in some ways I think I had to, um, you know, writing this piece, which I don't think I ever would have written were it not for Tenier's invitation, was really, um, you know, cathartic sounds like kind of a cliche, but it really was kind of transformative for me and helping me to come to terms with some of like the bad ideas that I had been carrying around um, about mentoring and mentorship. Um, and yeah, I think um, it, yeah, so it was, it was, it was a great experience for me in that way. And it definitely, I think has helped me think more holistically about like other types of mentoring relationships. So by the end of the piece, I kind of come through like the bad moment um, into this, I think more sort of like diffuse pluralistic understanding of mentoring as something that, again, I think as you, um, Nancy and Tenere use in your, your section heading a more horizontal, right. Understanding of mentorship um, rather than this more intensely hierarchical one.
1: Yeah. I mean, your essay, a Elizabeth, about sort of having a a bad boss, what the line is between bad boss and bad mentor, and made me think a lot about the different examples in this book that sort of why there needs to be a particularly feminist approach to mentorship, because it feels like there's, tell me if you'd agree, like a spectrum where it feels like if the, you know, either you're, you know, for women, there's like the all about Eve, one of your essays writes about all about Eve, like women who want mentors really just like want to steal your job and your boyfriend. And then this more more contemporary conversations along the lines of your examples of the assistant and the devil The devil wears Prada's in the intro. Um, I would say like the rise of the mentor monster, like women need to pay, they get groomed and they, they, need, they need to pay for the desire to be mentored. They'll be punished for it, sort of like, you know, um, the revenge of the all about Eve storyline or something, but that there are very few accounts of m- feminist mentorship, the closest, the most explicit one being Cheryl Sandberg, which I'm sure we'll get into has a number of shortcomings, both for academics and just for everyone. Um, but let's go way back, even farther back than Cheryl Sandberg, which feels like an, an eternity ago uh, when my friend told me to read it, I was like, different world um the title of your book is feminist reclaim mentorship and this this verb reclaim um I get stuck on because there is this feeling that there's a very there's a contested quality to this term that it's not clear who owns it um or who gets to decide what it means uh, but that it does as you document at the beginning of the book something that I probably should have known but didn't is that it really goes back to sort of um, ancient times, I'm not even thinking about you know flute boys and Socrates. Though I am kind of thinking about them too, but specifically sort of the ancient mythological component of um, of mentorship and what does it mean to track that term through history and then to reclaim it as a feminist.
0: Well, I'll give I'll give it a shot. Um, the actual term mentor comes from a very very ancient source, which is Homer's book, The Odyssey, which is really a story about men and power that to simplify um in the story uh odysseus who is it wants to protect his son called telemachus and he asks a friend whose name actually is mentor to c- care for this son and to prepare the son to become a ruler that's that's the kind of notion of the trajectory there he gets a little bit of help from the goddess athena now that sounds like it would be good because Athena is a female, but Athena is what we used to call male identified. <laughs> and so she, even though it is, a, as I say, a female figure of Athena who's associated with braininess, it's still a male, 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 male line of descent. And uh, the university almost immediately took this model over as the model of transmission of knowledge or transition, transmission of power. And in the modern university, as we, most of us know it, this is an entirely, or at least in the beginning, or mostly male descent, white male descent. Now you might wonder what on earth we want to do with that. Um, but we felt that it had a tremendous potential despite its sort of unpleasant origins in a way. And that once we understood that it didn't have to be vertical, that in fact we could tilt it over into a horizontal mode, which it would involve relationship and exchange, that there had a lot of potential. So um, we felt that we on the one hand, we had to destigmatize the ancient model and on the other hand we had to avoid the model that you were describing the tra- um, Prada all about Eve a lot of negative stereotypes. So we were looking in fact for stories that would complicate these these two legacies as you as you sketch them out. And we found a lot we, we were actually quite surprised um, by the di- the diversity of stories. And the complexity of stories and how in the end we really did not want to end up with a how-to book and give you one model that would work but to suggest different patterns of relationship that we thought would be productive especially in a world where work was changing and let me just add one thing about um, the context very soon after Tanir and I decided we would try to make this into a book and we actually got an agent, so we were feeling very high, the pandemic struck. And so during the pandemic, we never even saw each other. And we were dealing with the context of being separated, being in a world that seemed entirely to be falling apart and not know what what was going to emerge from it. And to try to construct something within those years of difficulty, in which the whole world of work was changing with people working remotely, jobs disappearing, so on and so forth. And that we really felt that we needed a way to think about this changing world of work.
2: Yeah, and I'll add a couple of more just points um, about sort of the the context of the word itself. So one of the models we were thinking about as we put together the book was uh, the anthology model. Right. And the second wave feminist anthologies um, like this bridge that really brought together different voices so that people didn't feel like whatever experience they were having was their own experience. So there was a little bit of feeling like, well, we need to talk about this thing, mentorship, that isn't actually talked about in a critical way that often. It's more... Um, Elizabeth uh, flagged for me mentorship month in February was it January 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 January, which was national mentorship month which we had no idea and there was a an NPR call-in show where people were talking about mentorship and it was really questions of how do I find a mentor who how do I make this mentor the person I need what do I want to look for in a mentor what do I ask for but it was not sort of the critical conversation we were looking for. So those, um, those anthologies, you know, from the 70s and 80s were very much in our mind as we were writing and thinking and, and editing and collecting. And then also working with Nancy, one of my favorite things was uh, as soon as you know we started this project, every time she came across the word mentor in any context, um, you know, in newspapers, magazines, wherever, and I would do the same uh we would send each other the link you know the clip of whatever it was we were reading and so some of the um context for that word were were really surprising and and really problematic considering how people feel about that word so there was um Trump mentioned with his mentor Roy Con Roy Kahn and there were other Nancy can
0: you think of any that um, jump well, then you were mind. you were very preoccupied. Well, at the same time, the hearings were going on for Brett Kavanaugh, and there was, um, and Brett Kavanaugh was boasting about his feminist so-called credentials because he, um, uh, what did it He coached girls' soccer or something along those lines, and th- to watch this display of male power shared. And the discrimination against this woman who was trying to tell her story made us think that word "mentor" we really didn't. We had to put some quote marks around it for a while because if 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 Kavanaugh could claim that he was feminist because and then good good on women because he he took, you know he dealt with these little girls, that was really a, kind of a nightmare for us. Um, yeah.
2: So- and we saw that same story play out. So, one of our authors, Lee Gilmore, who's written now two books related to Me Too and Testimony, um, in Lee Gilmore's essay in, in our book, she talks about Harvey Weinstein, and that word mentorship comes up again, right? He's offering mentorship. And Elizabeth's essay really falls under that same umbrella of, you know, the guise of mentorship and how this narrative we have about the positive. You know, mentorship as this always this positive thing is really problematic because it can hide a lot of things underneath.
3: Yeah. You know, I've, it's interesting you say that, Tanir, because I do feel like there's been this kind of context collapse around mentorship. It's become this, you know, and so I was talking to a student, I think this was last year, who mentioned my mentor, her mentor. And it turned out this was actually a coach that she was paying, right? So this was a much more transactional relationship but it had been sort of subsumed under, you know, the kind of, um, you know, the kind of discourse of mentorship um, and sort of, yeah, given cover in that way, as you said. So there is something sort of weird about like the pervasiveness of the discourse around mentorship and the lack of kind of critical discussion around it that you and Nancy were bringing to it.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to mention that as we were, as we were starting to work on the work out our basic concepts, I came across a book that the, the title of the book was, forget a mentor. And it was in uh, parentheses. And then it said, forget a mentor, get a sponsor and fast track your career. And the assumption that this uh, writer who was an economist, a woman economist, was that um, mentors the mentorship model is a one-way street. And that was partly why we got very interested in this notion of one-way street, two-way street, and so on. That it was a one-way street, and but what you really need, especially in business, is a sponsor who will be invested in earning money from your work. I was like, no, this is not what we mean. So there was a there's a there were a lot of myths, in fact, about mentorship in this, that really just see it only as a model of investment or exploitation and where the sense of connection was totally missing. Well, first of all, I really want to
1: write a book that's like, forget mentors, (laughs) build a time machine and get a patron. Yeah, that's exactly, that's what I I would love. I would love more mentors the better, but patrons (laughs) even better. But you're reading my mind, Nancy, because I do want to talk about those, these like myths of mentorship. And the first one I wanted to talk about, I think, is one of the most pervasive ones you're mentioning is um, mentorship is hierarchical. It is unidirectional, like it is the mentor helping the mentee. It's um, the mentor knows and the mentee has yet to know. And also that it is um, in some way a formal, a formal relationship, like something like you have to ask them, like you have to give them your rose kind of thing that is um, <laughs> bachelor style. So how do you feel that the essays in this book, which essays do you feel like do some interesting work challenging that formal hierarchical, unidirectional, one-way view of mentorship, which P.S. I think most people don't want to be mentors when they hear that because um, everyone secretly feels that they need to be doing better I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that about everyone, but everyone feels like they could use a hand and that they don't have enough time to give a hand, I think, uh, which is why many, you know, like, I think there's uh, one of your essays, I forget which one, uh, the woman who did the... Um,
3: uh, Melissa Duclos. Melissa,
1: yeah, yeah, The Mentor's Mirror, the program about mentorship, how hard it was for her to find mentors or people who um, saw themselves as Established, everyone feels that they're emerging.
2: Uh, <laughs> not Toss everyone, a but a lot of
1: people would rather get help than give help, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that came up and of course academia, I mean, it's, it's not new but COVID has sort of highlighted a lot of the, the labor issues that have been there for a long time. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about and thought about and that these essays really brought and I think actually most of the essays challenge all three of those myths, or all three of those pieces of the myth of hierarchical mentorship. Um, But but the question of institutional mentorship, um, you know, so in academia, for example, you have a dissertation director, Um, not all dissertation directors are alike, right? So um, and of course, we quote uh, Roxane Gay in our introduction, because Roxane Gay has written about the Um, uneven burden on, you know, people of color, women um, who are often sought out for their mentorship and for their perspective, but also have an unequal burden of how much mentorship they're expected to give, um, which is really, really a problem. So all of these questions sort of, I think, come out in in different essays. Um, Who's mentoring? You know, where's that mentorship coming from? And I think especially in academia, that formal problem is increasingly a problem because most people getting PhDs right now are not going to have jobs that their directors have, I'm assuming, right? They're not going to get tenure track jobs for the most part, at least in English. That's really a problem right now. And so the mentorship is not necessarily ever going to be or for the most part going to be I want someone whose career is going to look like what I want to have in the future. I mean, also, we have the problem of we don't even know what the future is going to look like. Um, You know, how many chat bots are going to be teaching our classes. Um, But you know, there's all of these sort of questions that I think a lot of our authors do do a good job addressing
0: yeah we um we recently had an event for the book um at the, at the grad center where i teach and um one of the surprising things that came up particularly through two students of color was the sense that they didn't feel a that they belonged there and b that um they didn't deserve the time um, that it would take. And we were, I was really quite shocked by by that. And I felt that the the fact that these students felt that they didn't deserve to be there or they didn't have the time, or that they couldn't take the time to ask for a mentorship or even to go to office hours, um, meant that the notion of mentorship as this extreme hierarchy, of privilege was still very strong and that they were unable to imagine a more collaborative exchange relationship in which they could ask for help or guidance or knowledge i mean after all the basic assumption of mentorship is the transmission of knowledge i mean it's unfortunately the transmission of knowledge is also tied with the transmission of power <laughs> but at, at heart, it's a question of, you have a library in your head, and these younger, since it's almost, these are intergenerational relationships, um, that somehow they don't have access to that library. And so it really demands that the person in the mentor position has to have an understanding of perhaps something like invitation, so that. Uh, the person looking for help would feel entitled to it. So that was definitely um, a, an eye opener for me. I never, I didn't expect to hear that. And I didn't expect to hear that in a public setting. And most of the students who attended this event were nodding that they felt the same way. So and go ahead. And just to
2: give some specifics. So Angela Francis's. is... Um essay and I think she was one of the two former PhD students um, who had written an essay about her experience was about you know just staying away right like not asking for what she thought she wasn't entitled to and then you have Sarah Chahaya's essay and she calls herself part of a group of misfits and she finds other students who are you know, on the same track as her and connect with them. So you see sort of different responses um, to the same problem. And then you have an essay at the beginning of the book, we have Susan Gubar's essay, which I found really interesting in the sense that she gives this career long perspective on her role as a mentor. And then in the midst of writing the essay, she solicits um, responses from students, former mentees of hers, former students, and she asks them what kind of a mentor was I. And the responses she gets are really surprising to her. When students tell her, "Well, you made me cry," you know. So um, what I really found helpful in reading these different essays was getting those different perspectives, which you know are really eye-opening. Whatever perspective you've had over time, whether as mentor or as
1: mentee, I could talk a lot about crying uh not my own experience i just have a lot of thoughts on like the kate megan who made who cried uh question and thinking about this and because that comes up in the book more than once different i think another author as well talks about mentees who cried which makes me feel bad for the mentee but having gone to graduate school it's not always about that conversation it's about the institutional pressures that mentors can both exacerbate and relief sometimes in the same conversation i think um but I really, I I really love the essays you mentioned. I remembered that essay about like, because she seems like she is a very dedicated mentee, uh, a mentor, but also there is, there is to be a good mentor sometimes means challenging your mentees. Uh, and the same thing is with these sort of friendships, these groups where you are together working through a problem together through these very intense professional um, shifts. And I want to, what did I want to say? Oh, darn. Um, I wanted to ask you something very specific related to your questions, which is, I remembered now. Um, all three of you are professors and you work with undergraduates and graduate students, I imagine, at least one of those groups. Um, How, what could an undergraduate or a graduate mentee do for you that you would like? You know what I mean? Because I think that a lot of them think they're not worth the time. Um, And that what you would, what they would get from it is like that good feeling of like putting money in the Salvation Army box at Christmas time or something, but it's not that. And I know it's not really about that, but you're also not necessarily looking for a freshman to come in and offer to, you know, copy edit your article either. That's not, they're not the right person for that. So what could a student or an advisee offer you as a mentee, practically speaking, that maybe make that that relationship, that formal hierarchical relationship feel more equal before it actually becomes more professionally equal, say.
2: I mean, I I think what we always get, or at least what I always get from my undergraduate students is a sense of what I'm doing well and what I could do a lot better in my classes um, or what I'm missing, right? So as the generational gap, especially over the years, gets larger between you know, what I'm interested in, what I read and what my students read, it's very helpful to just hear, well, you know, people don't really use Facebook anymore at my age, or we don't leave voicemails the way that (laughs) you mentioned that in class. And, or this author really doesn't speak to many of us. So I think just getting that perspective can be really helpful. And often for me, that's what these conversations where I'm recommending books or sort of giving advice or giving a peek into you know, professor life to show the student the that it's not so far off and here's how career trajectories work or whatever it is I'm trying to show. Um, I'm often getting that without, I don't even think the students thinking about that, but that's certainly always something I get out of it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I would echo Tanir. I mean, I also teach at CUNY and I teach actually um, largely working adult students who are coming back to school to finish their degrees. So I think they feel even sometimes less entitled to my time or to the faculty member's time. So I I do think just to echo what we were saying before, um, that I would really, I I think my students come in very much um, you know with the idea that they should be pursuing mentorship, that they should be going to office hours. And yet Um, kind of completely, um, I think to come back maybe to the terms of the title, don't feel like they have any claim um, on on that idea. And so I think it's really, for me, it's Kind of feels like a constant process of helping them to unlearn a lot of um, a lot of preconceptions they have um, about the dynamic between faculty member and student, right? And the kind of very punitive um, ideas about education that I think they have been understandably like very acculturated to and their and their previous experiences. I also think, and this is maybe like a little bit off track but since we mentioned sarah chahaya's essay i really like that she kind of mentioned her own psychology here and just that she sort of personally had never really felt particularly um you know kind of into the idea of mentorship or that she didn't feel like she knew how to cultivate members and i mentors i do think that um sometimes we need to kind of control for these kinds of idiosyncrasies when we sort of prescribe mentorship to students, right? Not students are not all the same and they're gonna have, um, you know, both kind of like structural challenges to contend with in terms of seeking it out, but also like their own anxieties, right? And so, you know, some students are just not gonna come to office hours, no matter how often you sort of exhort them to, and you're gonna have to find maybe other ways, as Nancy said, to kind of invite them into that relationship, whether it's through a kind of individualized email or something else. So yeah, people are weird. So you need to kind of, uh, I guess, accept that in the,
0: in the relationship. Well, I want to say two things about, first of all, I don't teach undergraduates anymore, so I can't comment on that. But, um, with graduate students, one of the, I think to the extent that I've been successful as a mentor, and I have to confess that I was mentored for so long that I still can't believe I'm really a mentor, but, um, that with take the the, with the case of Tanir, I can be very concrete. Should, um, and, but she, this was not the only case where her work on comics, um, was completely new to me. And, um, so I really didn't have any particular expertise or even bibliography. She was actually guiding me and that the, but it, and that led, actually, to my own, developing my own interests and my own writing about comics that I had never really considered as a possibility. So, and I th- I don't think that's the, o- that this is certainly not the only case for me, but I don't think it's the only case for other people, too, because the students, partly because we're in an intergenerational model, students are going to come in with different knowledges and different perspectives, different um repertoire of knowledge and and so right there is the possibility of another kind of relationship that would have an exchange function and, and which I think is very important but it, but it really is the case that you have to work against students several students or several people we interviewed and talked about or who have talked about the book said oh I was a really bad mentee You don't have too many people saying I was a really bad mentor, (laughs) but you do have people saying I was a very bad mentee, meaning they didn't go, they didn't take advantage of the possibility of entering into a relationship that they just assumed that it was not something for them.
1: I, I definitely feel that. I feel like if you like play back your life, like there are moments where you think, and that person, if I had just followed up on that conversation Um, like I have people in my life, in my memory, uh, who they're, they figure as a mentor for like one thing they said to me one time, just assuming that I was going to be successful at something I was doing meant a lot. Um, but then I never, I never kept up with that, but I appreciate you offering these, these sort of more, um, practice solutions because I think a lot of people don't reach out because they think they need to perform some kind of particular mentee. Um, duty. They need to sort of be all sort of like, you know, the catch 22, they need to already be the person that their mentor is going to turn them into in order to become a mentee. Um, And I think that because of that hierarchical model, um, a lot of mentors feel like they need, they need to already have achieved everything to be the best mentor. Although you're saying that a lot of people, no one was saying they're a bad mentor, but I will say that when younger people come to me for advice on things, the hardest part is how often I have to demystify myself if that makes sense and be like oh how did I get that oh I, I got rejected for years and then eventually I got that or how did you know how how's that going I don't know it's not good.
3: So <laughs> Facebook's going great actually... but you're too
1: young to be on Facebook I look like I'm really <laughs> killing it on Facebook <laughs> but the Gen Z's missing that um missing out on it um uh right. another myth I wanted to talk about that's related but not the same um is that mentees should select mentors based on who they want to be, who they want to be like, uh, and that sometimes that means sort of watching from afar. Mm. To what extent is that true? And to what extent uh, do you find issue with that kind of statement? I,
0: I do think it's true in some ways. And actually I'm reading a memoir now by uh, Misty Copeland, who is describes herself as a black ballerina. And it, for her, the the, the entire book, is constructed around her relationship with a previous black ballerina called Raven Wilkinson. And the way Misty Copeland tells the story, she thought she was the only black ballerina that she knew of. And then she meets this woman, Raven who had been a dancer who had been excluded from the kind of um, companies that, that um, Copeland had access to. And, but the, this older woman who had been this fantastic dancer takes on the job takes on the role of always being there and that leads to this expression that she uses in the title of the wind at my back that um that raven the older woman the experienced woman will always be there to offer support but also to evaluate to be in a position to evaluate the performance of the younger dancer. So it's not as, so on the one hand, there's that sense of knowledge wanting to be like, or to admire somebody who's way ahead of you, but at the same time to accept that person's expertise. So, and I think that that's maybe something that interferes in relationships where, where a mentee might feel um, too much in awe or, that the gap is too is too big, so I think this model of accepting and perhaps it's associated with performance. I don't know, but, but th- that's another co- way to think about things outside of the academic institution. It's very moving. The story, yeah.
1: Tanir, you look like you wanted to say something. No one's you. Oh, in. I'm
2: checking to see if Elizabeth has. Otherwise, I'll jump. No,
3: go ahead,
1: Tanir.
2: Um. Well, I was just. Just in thinking about um, finding someone like you, I think sometimes the thing that you get out of the relationship is not necessarily what you think you're looking for. So, thinking about, I'll just say from my end, my relationship with Nancy as her mentee, maybe going in, I don't, I, I can't really remember myself at the beginning of the PhD program, but I imagined I thought, well, here's a feminist critic who studies memoir, who has a steady job. <laughs> um who writes lots of books i imagine those were the things that were drawing me at first but you know throughout our relationship what i often tell people when they ask is that through our interactions i really learned how to think um mm-hmm. and what i mean by that is how to think through writing how to revise um one of my favorite aspects of of collaborating on this book and writing the introduction. Was we would have, we set aside Friday mornings and we would have phone dates where we would open up Google Docs and together we would, each of us would read, you know, a few sentences of what we had written together and then we would add some lines and we would revise. And what really um, became evident was how different our styles were of writing and revising. Um, and some of the radical moves that Nancy would make, she would say, how about if we take this paragraph from the bottom of page eight and stick it right here on page two. And these were strategies I that never would have occurred to me. I'm a much more methodical, you know, sentence by sentence, chronological writer. Um, and it was really a revelation to me how associative in some ways and, creative her style of revision is and that was something I got a lot throughout our relationship I would come into her office when I was still a a student and we would have conversations about Grace Paley or the person I was writing about and just hearing her make associations with you know other books or other ideas that hadn't ever occurred to me I really just learned this method of I guess it's really being an intellectual being a writer um, and that, to me, was looking back the most valuable aspect of our relationship. But I don't think that would be limited to someone with a PhD or someone who became a professor. Yeah, I actually like that you mentioned, Tanir, you know, the
3: kind of um, sort of editing and co-writing as forms of mentorship too, because I feel like sometimes that will sneak up on you. I've had relationships that almost entirely unfold as sort of writing and editing relationships, but you can learn a lot, as you said, from like watching someone else's moves, right. And what they suggest. And, um, it kind of can completely like melt your brain, right. To see how someone else is thinking and that there's something very intimate sometimes in that kinds of, um, really collaborative writing together.
1: I agree. I I have found that as well. And I think that something that comes up a lot in all of these essays is, I mean, obviously that it's good to find mentors who work on similar things. It's good to find mentors that remind you of yourself who move through the Mm -hmm. world in a similar way. If you're a queer woman of color, to find an advisor who knows what it's like to navigate your field or your profession as a woman, of a queer woman of color, things like that. Um, I'm thinking of Ashna Ali. uh, I don't Mm -hmm. think was queer, but... Um, but being a woman of color in the Academy and like sort of having to accept that part of herself by accepting her mentorship. Um, but I think that something that comes up even more maybe is this idea that, um, the best mentors give you space. They give you space to be, to sort of be yourself and do your own thing. And that might be too close if you're working, if you're trying to become a, a duplicate of someone who already exists, then you can't, they then you don't have a great mentor-mentee relationship. You have a kind of Xerox, uh, Xerox copy relationship. Let's just talk about old technologies: voicemail, Xerox. <laughs> to those
3: Facebook. listening at home, a
1: Xerox machine was a big box, and you would put the thing down
0: and mimeograph.
1: Yeah, yeah. A <laughs> Car- uh, carbon copy. That's is that has that aged better? I don't know.
0: I don't um, think carbon. I don't. <laughs> they don't have the I, I think that. I think I doubt there'll be any recognition for carbon. Yeah. Um uh, Maybe but not. But I'm glad. But, but but I'm glad you bring up the question of technology, as we noticed this morning as we were getting going. Um, one a, again, Angela Francis talked about how one of the ways in which she was able to negotiate the relationship of difference was that her her technology, her ability to deal with technology that older colleagues could not deal with. And I re- I remember very distinctly when our university went into some insane universal email. There was nothing wrong with our email, but they created a whole new system. Um, and it was impenetrable to me and to most people, of my, my generation. And Angela was just like the subtle person who was able to go in and show how to do, how to deal with all of this. <clears throat> so that the, in an intergenerational model, there are some things that the younger person brings that are just the, unique to them that will never be replicated by the older generation. So that I think it's also important for, the younger person entering into this kind of system to realize that they're bringing knowledges that are opaque to their, you know, to the senior people. Yeah. And, and so this
1: idea of paying dues, yeah. sometimes it's a trick. I mean, it's really that mentor, the kinds of mentors that one should be seeking out would not ask you to pay dues because they would know that they are getting something in return. Right. That's so In a form of education and, and collegiality and friendship and um, just wanting more people to be doing the kind of work that they would be helping them to do.
2: Yeah, I wanted to jump in also because we've sort of been circling around this, but I want to make sure that we we highlight the non-professional aspects of mentorship. Of course, this is where boundaries be- can become problematic if too blurred, but the fact of, so Sarah Blackwood has a beautiful essay called Mm -hmm. the group text or the small stuff, which is really about collaborative mentorship. So mentorship among a group of friends who are on a group text together. But one of the things I love about her piece is she highlights the non-professional aspects of mentorship. In other words, mentoring for the other people, um, how important it is to not be laboring all the time and to not be hyper-focused all the time on work. Um, which I think is a, a really important aspect of mentorship that often is downplayed, um, especially when you're thinking of the mentor as sponsor or, of, you know, the transactional forms of the relationship. You're not so much thinking about all of these other things that happen, like the networks that open up, just to loop back to the beginning of the conversation, the network of our table of contents, you know, the, the, all the other things that mentorship can bring um, that's outside of professional context.
1: It's so funny, because when I was okay. so when I was in high school, that's a great way to start an actor. <laughs> but when I was in high school, I had a drama teacher, and he really mentored me as a performer and as a writer. And for me, what was so powerful about that mentorship was sort of how um professional it was. Do you know what I mean? Like he treated me like I was a real like a thinking person. Uh, And he didn't sit backwards in a chair, dangerous mind style. He wasn't trying to inspire me. He just sort of, and I didn't know much about him and he didn't know much about me, but that that was somehow very important to me that I was being treated like um, an artist or something rather than a teenager who like needs something to do between the hours of three and five. But as I get older, mentorship becomes more about um, what you're saying. The non-professional has become more, more important. I'm not sure why that is, but just seeing that, Uh, I just came back from the Society of Cinema and Media Studies Conference, Mm -hmm. as did Elizabeth, who I saw out there. Um, But seeing people who I admire, whose work I admire, like seeing them get a drink, seeing them at parties, seeing them like relaxing is in a certain way, has become important to me because I guess of that modeling, that sense of like, oh, they are also people. And so I can also be a person who could maybe write things that people would read. So I wonder if that is we're talking a lot about intergenerational relationships and mentorship, but like what we need at different phases of our life, I think, is important. When you're a teenager, everyone wants to be like, "Hey, kid, how you doing? How you feel?" And when you're an adult, no, you know, like people don't ask that as much. So for me, that trajectory has been, I, I don't need you to treat me like
3: a scholar. I no. would just like to like be a person. Um,
2: yeah, I think. Yeah. Um,
3: oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go. Okay, so I think Melissa, I think it's Melissa Casaquino's essay where she talks about mentorship as mirroring or that idea of sort of modeling, right? And so I think just sort of modeling the way to move through the world, right? And so I think that is, I really like that idea, Annie. And it reminds me, this is a little bit different, maybe slightly more professional, but one of my, back to high school one of my earliest professors our teachers um I remember when we first handed in a, a written assignment he returned it to me I think to all of us with like twice as much feedback on as as what we had written um and just took our ideas so seriously right um but then you know no big deal it wasn't like he expected us to you know uh necessarily do anything with the feedback it was really up to us right and it just it, there's there's times where people sort of offer a gesture right that you find so compelling in that moment right and such a perception persuasive model for sort of just like how to be either as a, as a worker, as a person. And um, this is maybe again, not to get too much of a sidebar, but I, I think we came, we were talking earlier before, maybe Annie, you were talking about having kind of like just the encounter you need at a particular time, right? Like that can kind of open things up. And so, you know, I I do think that even though mentorship should ideally be this long-term sustained relationship, that sometimes there are these more brief situational encounters that can have an outsized impact on us. Um, And so there, you know, there are, I've had a couple of times thinking about conferences where someone's given either some really encouraging feedback or just we've had a really nice conversation and maybe we have follow-up conversations in the years since, but that that those encounters, even in and of themselves, if they're not, maybe they're not mentorship per se, but there's a kind of function there that I think is really affirmative, um, maybe in the spirit of, of a mentoring relationship. So yeah. yeah.
1: Mentorship in like this book has really made me think a lot about sort of how friendship and mentorship are mm-hmm. connected. And as I was saying before we started recording, I think a lot about like our mutual friend about two fortune hunters who accidentally marry each other, each thinking that the other one has the fortune. (laughs) And I feel like I've had a lot of phone calls and Zoom dates where I was like, oh, you want me to be the mentor? I thought you were going to be the mentor. (laughs) But those end up being the most generative friendships because as you're talking about with editing, like they see things I don't see in my Mm -hmm. own writing that I see in other people's writing. And I'll, call it out I'll point out like no 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 not not like that but I'll then I'll do it and sometimes you need that distance but and then so like you learning from each other is a kind of mentorship or that horizontal mentorship can be really really powerful um but we keep talking about high school Tanir <laughs> did you oh. want to say something before we move on I was just gonna like we were just gonna talk about the APs we took no I'm just kidding go on
2: Um, I was just going to say, it's also important to really think about power dynamics and the context of the relationship, because in high school, if it's a teacher, or I think about this when I train um, instructors who are teaching undergraduates, it's really important to have firm boundaries in place. And Mm -hmm. I think too much of the personal is really problematic. And that's where, you know, some of the essays, the me too essays, as I think of them are, you know, you can really see those boundaries being blurred. In problematic contexts, when there's a real um, there's a real power dynamic at play, I think the same is true of you know your dissertation advisor relationship. There was a change between my being Nancy's student when you know she was the one in charge of my dissertation and approval, versus once I graduated, there was a shift there. Um, and I think it's really important for those moments to be recognized, to be recognized for what they are, and that was also one of the things we really really wanted to highlight was how can we take this word that's applied everywhere but really think about like all of the context as Elizabeth was saying the context collapse is a real problem but how do we think about okay when you are a dissertation advisor what part of that is mentorship and you know what are what are what are the mentees rights and what are their obligations and what are your rights and what are your obligations those are the things I think that aren't talked about enough we sort of Mm -hmm. take for granted or we we use the wrong words or we just overlap and we don't really think about the specifics and we're not offering answers in our book but we are having lots of interesting conversations well some of that maybe goes in volume two,
1: the contract the rights and responsibilities of the mentee um but i'm realizing how much this has been a very reflective retrospect like uh kind of conversation where we're we're sort of looking into our past And so I want, this is sort of the third myth I want to talk about, which is this sort of the presentist mentorship, that when you are being, it is easy to recognize good or bad mentorship as it is happening. It is something that you can sort of pinpoint, understand, and exploit as it is happening. I feel like that is one of the more obscure, less thought about myths of mentorship particularly kind of business reviewy articles about like how to find a mentor and then you keep them and then you drain them and then you leave them. But, um, but this feeling, I feel like a lot of the essays in this are about, understandably about looking back and, and sort of mentorship in retrospect. Let's talk a little bit about that. Elizabeth, yours is a lot about that, I would say.
3: Yeah, you know, and it's, I feel like, you know, I went through different sort of phases of reckoning with this relationship, you know, and in the essay, I talk about initially writing about this relationship in a kind of positive light, right, as this kind of coming of age sort of, um, you know, kind of gal Friday story where I apprentice to this well known food critic and learned so much and made it in the big city, right. But this story I tell about the relationship, right, with some things that happened subsequently, um, is a very different one. And so I, I, it seems very clear to me that, um, I, I at least have not really been good at at necessarily recognizing the tenor of a relationship as it's happening, right? Thinking a kind of bad relationship was good at the time, right? And only retroactively being able to understand something. So, I really was struck by um, in Ashna Ali's essay where she talks about sort of waiting too long to share with a mentor how formative she had been because I think that time lapse um, in my experience is is very real that often um, things don't become clear um, until until sometimes you're no longer in conversation with that person or the opportunity to be able to talk with them has has passed.
2: One of my favorite pieces in the book is. By Melissa Duclos, who was a very dear friend, who is a very dear friend of mine. We went to college together and we were both creative writing majors. Um, And in her essay, she talks about uh, an MFA program at an institution. I will not say the name, but you can go to the book if you're curious, um, where most of the instructors were men and she was not feeling particularly mentored. And it's a story of how her partner, her romantic partner who became her husband, um, became or took on that mentorship role because of that. And then the dissolution of their marriage, and then looking elsewhere for that kind of mentorship. So it's a really compelling story, I think. And it's the kind of story that you wouldn't really think about mentorship in a divorce story, but actually, when you read it, it becomes clear how much this professional trajectory was actually unfolding at the same time as this romantic trajectory and how much overlap there was. It's really a a beautiful story, I think. And um, it just goes to show again, how it's not just like, oh, I didn't realize this person was my mentor. I didn't realize this person was a bad mentor, but it's also, I didn't realize how much these like personal and professional narratives were so entwined. Mm Nancy, do you want to add anything to that?
1: That sort of reflecting on mentorship.
0: <laughs> well, I would just say that I had an, well. This is a little bit complicated. My my advisor, who who was actually not my mentor, he supported me throughout my graduate career. Graduate being a being a graduate student, but once I became professional, he um, actually started a, well taking me down, and in fact we had a very unpleasant public um, encounter in another institution in which he attacked me as being a feminist and he attacked me feeling that feminists had othered him (laughs) was very violent and I was really publicly humiliated and I had actually respected this man while I was a student because he was very brilliant and he had chosen me and I was feeling that I was like a little star as he used to say but it was only when a female colleague who was the person I mentioned in my book Carolyn Halliburin intervened in within this institution as a form of friendship and protection that I was able to see everything that I had missed while I was an actual student writing my dissertation so I I do think it's um, it's territory that you have to learn how to negotiate. I think following on what what um, Elizabeth was saying, that you have to be alert to what the politics and power struggles are within a particular relationship. So we can't be too, um, uh, what's the word I want, thrilled about mentorship across the board. It, it's a it's a source of potential potential um joy productive productivity and connection but it's also has its danger spots. so i think that we need to keep a so when when we were first thinking about the title of the book we were going to say stories good bad and everything in between and we do have to acknowledge that there are these in between zones that have their own danger so we're really opening looking to open the conversation so that we can see what's possible and what's dangerous actually.
1: Well thank you for sharing that story. And I think it just help it will help listeners to understand that even the most brilliant among us do cannot necessarily see the full picture because we can't see the future. Um uh, and you know, particularly within the academy, I think usually your choice of advisor or director is limited. And so you may not necessarily um find the an advisor who can cover all parts of yourself and your output and your thinking, uh, which is an argument for having obviously a committee, which most people do, but also even that is not always gonna cover everything or that there are these sort of these pitfalls. And I think one of them, I don't wanna make any generalizations, but those among us who are feminists, but perhaps fear disappointing others who have been socialized from a young age to please people, are going to have difficulties in mentor-mentee relationships because they that feeling of like that that piety of of devotion loyalty means not exploring the avenues and approaches and methods that really inspire you um i hope that that continues to get better with each generation but as we've discussed it's not as though the academy is thriving at, with each generation but that these kinds of conversations and understandings are getting better Elizabeth, did you
3: want to Yeah, no, Annie, I'm just so glad you said that because I do think that it's really important and particularly in the academic context to know that, you know, being mentored does not mean giving away your agency. It doesn't mean, you know, um that you're submitting to some years long audition, right? It's and I think that is still, as you said, I think there's a real gendered component there that we may not even be conscious of while it's happening. I know I certainly wasn't. Um, And, you know, I think I I very much thought of myself as a feminist, right? So these different forces can kind of cancel each other out despite our best intentions. And that's why I think it is really valuable to have these conversations and be really explicit about naming um, some of these, some of these very ingrained behaviors and and practices and narratives. Um,
1: Okay. So I think we only have time for maybe one or two more questions. Um, I do want to talk about the editing in the book, sort of devising the the assemblage of this book and like how it called on your mentorship and menteeship skills. That's particularly directed to Nancy Antonier. But Elizabeth, if you have any experience editing you want to bring into it, um, you're so welcome.
2: Nancy, do you want to jump in?
1: Because I talked a
2: little. You start. Uh, Okay. Um, Well, I talked a little bit about already our process but i will say during the pandemic having that weekly call with nancy was really was really helpful just as a connecting experience having someone to connect with having someone to connect with intellectually and having a project that required obviously a lot mm-hmm. of thinking kind of work but also when you're editing i think you can sit back a little bit and we had so many beautiful writers sending us pieces that I think it did uh, lend itself to a more luxurious kind of experience.
0: Oh uh, yeah. Well, when to, to to talk earlier about when Tanya was talking about my moving things, moving paragraphs, at the same time, she was relentless on the use of a comma, and um, we would have these moments in which I would, I would think. I don't think we need a comma here. And and we were actually having these insane debates about whether the where the comma should go. Um, But and 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 another sort of aspect of um, editing was sensitivities to what we're now in in the new, well, let's say, self-conscious discourse about difference and um, I found myself often needed to be um, maybe not admonished, but I mean, at least been having to pay attention to assumptions I was making about things that I could say, but that would have now would have all kinds of um, negative uh, associations. And so it was important to me that tanir was coming into writing itself with a actually literally a different ear. Um, from from mine, so that I, I do think that it very often in an intergenerational situation. Um, that's I'm um, sorry about that, that um, uh, that's an advantage that young people don't necessarily the younger generation doesn't necessarily know that it has that it that it, it is bringing something new to the conversation. And I think that's hugely important, hugely important.
2: And one of the things that, that I really loved was um, when we landed on Working Girl for our introduction because I love that choice. Know. I love
1: that choice for you.
2: It's a cultural touchstone that really it came up in our lives at very different professional moments in our lives, and yet um, for both of us there were all of these ringing bells that happened when we thought about it, and you know when we landed on it, we were sort of thinking through, okay, what are the films that show mentorship in different ways. And it was an opportunity for both of us to kind of do our homework and then have a little group talk about it. Okay. You know, I rewatched it. Here's what, here's what resonated for me. Here are my memories of where I was in my life when I first saw that movie. Um, So that was, that was really fun. And we did that with a lot of different um, references that came up in different essays. It was also great fun to just get these different responses that were often unexpected and really moving and really filled with these stories that a lot of people said they had never told before. So even Rachel Adams's first piece, I mean, I think for ev- for a lot of our authors, submitting these essays was a scary thing because writing about your mentor, it's like as a memoirist writing about a parent or writing about a sibling, like it's a very scary thing to write about this relationship that's often complicated and very personal and is exposing something, even when they're, you know, mostly positive essays. It is, you are exposing your own point of view that is not necessarily shared by the other person. So that was really, um, you know, I I feel very lucky that people trusted us with their words in that way, with their stories.
1: Agreed. Well, okay, so I want to give you a chance to talk about any, are there any future book-related events with this? Are you doing any additional talks? Is anything coming out that we should know about in relationship to Feminist Reclaim Mentorship?
2: So we have a celebration and reading at the CUNY Graduate Center, and I'm. it's on May 4th. Um, and if anyone is interested, they can contact either of us or just look online. Um, it's through the Graduate Center, and it's sponsored by several programs, including the English program. Um, and also, just to say if anyone has any interest in having us talk to their institution or group of people about mentorship or or bringing one of our authors in, we're very interested in that in that prospect.
1: Well, I hope people I hope people listening really do take that that invitation seriously because when you read this book, you feel like you are in community with these writers. You feel like you are friends and being mentored by all of these essays um so much of it felt very familiar to me so much of it was like a really fascinating departure from my experiences um and so i really would suggest um that you pick it up even if you don't you know like you have already so many academic books i promise you don't have
2: this one um and we you know also just to add we wanted a book that you could give like a teenager going off to college or not going off to college right that we wanted a book that would really resonate with young people, especially, but not only young women, that would get them really thinking critically before they embarked on their own mentorship experiences, maybe high school even, since we were talking a lot about high school. Um, but we did, we tried to make this, it's it's non-academic writing for the most part, and we tried to make it really accessible to people who are just interested in thinking you know, more critically and being more prepared before embarking um in the professional world but not only the professional world
1: well thank you so much thank you nancy thank you tanir thank you elizabeth um mentors send you know mentees send your mentors a thank you text today Mentors, send your mentees a thank you do it both ways um (laughs) two way street (laughs) hug a friend buy a (laughs) coffee i don't know and most importantly get uh your hands on the feminist reclaim mentorship and anthology from uh the suny series uh in feminism feminist criticism and theory part of suny press um wherever you like to buy your suny press books uh yes guess- and there's a discount all through the month of may <laughs> there's oh wow there's a discount so sh- they should go to the suny homepage, the press homepage for that for that code okay correct okay thank you so much thanks everyone uh you've been listening to the new books network and i'm annie burke